Good morning, and welcome to those of you who are rejoining us for the first time this week. I'm glad that what you heard about last week was reassuring for you, and we're delighted to see you this morning, and welcome back those who were here last week. Just to give you a reminder, I'll not run through uh, all the details that you're already aware of again, but just a reminder that at the end of our time together, we aren't going to rush you away. But we do just ask that you don't circulate around the room. And then once we've had time to say hello to people within a range of us, then we'll leave through these fire doors on your right. If you would normally be in Sunday school, there are worksheets available again for the sermon. Those are on the table at the back. But we're going to begin this morning by remembering the amazing truth that God knows us. You and I might feel like we're ignored or we're forgotten, but the truth is the Lord of the universe knows us. He pays attention to us. We are not ignored or forgotten. And we're going to begin by reminding one another of that truth as we read together from Scripture. So I'm going to put on the screen some words from Psalm 139. Just the opening verses of that psalm, and I'll ask you if you'll stand with me, please, and we'll praise God by saying these words together. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. We're going to hear a song now that reminds us of what that psalm has just told us. All our ways are known to him.
Um, just before we pray, um, I sent a message to the church a couple of weeks ago uh, about delivering tracks around Pelsall, and uh, lots of you came back to me. Uh, if you have come back to me and uh, I've given you some leaflets to deliver, uh, or I've given you some streets rather, I have the leaflets with me, uh, and I'd like you to come and get them at the end of the service. So to do that, I'll be on the desk at the front where um, you came in, and in the one-way system that we've got, that means going through that door and then through the fellowship hall and out there. Uh, and then um, I'll remind you how many you've got, and then they're in batches of 50, and you can collect the ones that you need, uh, and then you can deliver them. There are also some stickers that you can take with you that have our contact details on that you can stick on the leaflets as well. So uh, if that involves you, uh, please come see me after the service. Also, if you want to deliver some leaflets and you haven't got back to me, um, there's lots of streets left that we uh, need to allocate. So do, again, come see me afterwards, going through that way on the table out there, and I can give you some streets. And as we're delivering some uh, gospel tracts, it'd be good to pray uh, that they have an impact, wouldn't it? So uh, let's pray for that together, and we'll include that now uh, as we pray. So let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, have been reading about how you know us and are familiar with all our ways. Uh, we cannot escape you. Uh, we cannot flee from your presence. You are the omniscient and omnipresent God. And as we consider this truth, uh, there is a, a response of comfort and joy that we know that you are with us. Uh, but there's also, in one sense, where this thought is just terrifying. Holy God, it is terrifying to realize that you know all about us, and that includes the dark places of our lives. We have sinned in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds, and you know it all. You know more than we even know. And so we want to confess this morning our sin. We confess that we have sinned and that we deserve your judgment. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and ask for forgiveness because of Jesus. We thank you that your presence came in the flesh and that because Jesus has died in our place for our sin, we can be forgiven of our sins and stand in your presence with no fear. Help us never to lose the joy and the wonder of that in its familiarity. We thank you, Holy God, that we can call you Heavenly Father and that being in your presence for your people is fullness of joy. And as we begin to deliver gospel tracts this week, we pray that you would draw people to your presence and show them their need of Jesus and the hope that can be found in him. Please, Lord, would you save people whom we deliver tracts to from their sins. We pray you would reveal the truth about yourself, open their eyes to the truth. And in these days where so many are struggling with anxiety and are troubled because of coronavirus. 
May we point them to the hope that is found in Jesus. We also pray for your people at this time. Many are struggling in our church with anxiety and worry. We pray that the knowledge that you know all our ways, that you are with us, that you help us and guide us and have all of us in your loving hands would give us confidence to live lives for you, for your glory, and that we can trust you each and every day. We pray this especially as so many have been isolating for such a long period. We pray for our church as we continue to struggle against sin. We thought last week about making covenants with sin. Deliver us from evil, we pray. We pray that we would take seriously this fight against sin and live according to your word. And may we see this as for our flourishing. Lord, renew our minds that we would see sin for what it is and see you for who you are. And Father, we pray for those who are wandering away, wandering away from you or have wandered away. And we pray that you would please draw them back to you. Remind them of your presence, that you know all their ways. Remind them even of judgment to come. Show them that there is no greater place to be than in your presence under your fatherly care. And as we spend time in your presence, Lord, we pray that we will become more and more like Jesus. And so this morning, we pray that you would do a work through us to that end. As we hear your word preached, we pray that we would live for your glory, knowing that it's for our good, so that we can show our world the blessing of dwelling with the living God. And we pray all of these things in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Amen. As we've just heard, outside of Christ, God's powerful presence is a terrifying thing, if we really understand it. But in Christ, God's presence is a never-ending reassurance to us. And we're going to uh, continue to think about that as we continue to read in Psalm 139. We're going to pick up, and again, we'll participate together by uh, reading these words together. So if you'll stand with me again, please. In recent months, we've been so thankful for all the recordings that we've had of songs that you sang 
and we've been so glad to be able to use those, but obviously we didn't have every song recorded going into this period. We weren't expecting what happened. So uh, some of the songs we don't have, but we'd like to use them. So Megan and Erwin have agreed to play a couple for us now that focus on the greatness of our God, and, and the words will be on the screen as they sing.
Last week we started looking at the book of Judges. <clears throat> and so if you'll turn with me this morning to Judges chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week and read from chapter 2 verse 6 down to chapter 3 verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Beals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But... When the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan, 
He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites, to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This is God's word. Do you ever feel disappointed with God? Do you ever feel he's not really delivered for you? He hasn't produced, he hasn't come through, he hasn't been there for you. I guess we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but I think the feeling is pretty common. Disappointment with God. Martin Luther was one of the most significant figures in the history of the church, and we think of him, if we know about him, we think of him as a great man of faith. But Martin Luther was also a man who regularly sank into dark depressions. And during one of those periods of depression, his wife, Katie, dressed herself all in black. When Luther saw her sitting there, he asked her who had died. And Katie said, God has died. Luther was shocked. He said, that's blasphemy. You can't talk like that. Katie replied to her husband, well, you're the one who's acting like God is dead. You and I would agree with Martin Luther, it is blasphemy to say God is dead. We never would say it. But sometimes, don't we act like he's dead? When we mope around feeling disappointed with him and what we have in him, What does that have to do with our passage this morning? Well, the passage is here to challenge us that God's faithfulness never ceases. His grace and mercies are new every morning. And so the question this passage is asking you and me is this. Who cares about God's grace? In our disappointments, in our frustrations, are you and I willing to stop and take notice of his grace? If you and I are willing to do that, then our disappointment with God can turn into joy and appreciation for his never-failing love. That's what our passage can lead us to. But I would suspect that our first reaction to this passage may well be confusion. Because chapter 2, verse 6, refers to Joshua alive. But chapter 1, verse 1, told us Joshua was dead. So which is it? Well, we saw, what we saw last week was that after Joshua's death, the Israelites still had significant work to do. Joshua had led them into the promised land of Canaan, 
They had a good foothold in the land, but there was plenty of unfinished business. There were lots of battles still to be fought if the land was truly going to be their land. We also saw the Lord was with the Israelites. With his power, they could win the battles they had to fight. But as we read on last week, we discovered they didn't really have the heart for the fight. They didn't drive the Canaanites out. In fact, we heard the Israelites pledging covenant love to the Canaanites. And the passage ended with God challenging Israel, if you go on this way, you're not going to take the land at all. Your enemies will end up taking you. We saw how the people responded to that challenge with tears. They wept. But it remained to be seen whether they would truly change or not. And what we find in our passages this morning is, before telling us more about this current generation of Israelites, the writer takes us back to the previous generation, Joshua's generation. We've already seen the current generation in action with their half-hearted attempts to take Canaan. But now we're taken back a generation so we can begin to see what is wrong with the current generation. Verse 7 sums up their parents' generation. It tells us that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. It's no wonder Joshua's generation served the Lord. They had seen with their own eyes all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. The great things means the contents of the book of Joshua. The people crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. They were given a miraculous victory over the city of Jericho. And in another amazing incident, just to take one example, God caused the sun to stand still in the sky, enabling the Israelites to defeat an alliance of Canaanite kings. It must have been an exhilarating time to be an Israelite and see all those amazing things. It's no wonder Joshua's generation served the Lord. His grace and his faithfulness were in their face. They couldn't avoid the truth of God's reality and God's power. But, look what comes next. After verses 8 and 9 give us details about Joshua's death and burial, this is what we read in verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, after they died, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This is talking about the current generation. This is the people we met last week. How is it possible these people didn't know the Lord or what he had done for Israel? How can that be? Well, I think there is a double indictment here. This verse is pointing to a double failure. The first failure was by the previous generation. 
as much as that generation knew and served the Lord, as faithful as they were to the Lord, it seems they did a poor job of teaching their children about the Lord and about the great things he'd done. It was a major failure. God had set up a whole series of annual festivals in Israel. A whole series of rituals. And all of it was designed to teach about his character and his ways. He had given priests to teach the people. He had given parents the responsibility to impress on their children God's word and God's ways. The book of Deuteronomy says families were to talk about those things regularly as they went about their daily life. But somehow, despite all of those opportunities, despite all of those instructions from God about what was to happen, this new generation grows up and they know neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What a sad failure by the parents. What a terrible handicap for this new generation. But before we feel too sorry for them, this verse is, I think, pointing equally to a failure on their part. Yes, it seems Joshua's generation did a bad job of passing on what they knew, but it's not like it would have been hard for the kids to find out. If the parents did a bad job of passing on what they knew, the children showed a shameful lack of interest in what their parents knew. Surely they realized their parents had been part of something wonderful. And their awareness of that would only have increased as they grew into adulthood and began to see the differences between themselves and the Canaanites around them. If the parents were negligent in passing on knowledge of the Lord and his work, the children, for their part, had little interest in finding out about it, it seems. So we can ask the question of both parents and children in Israel, who cares about God's grace? Specifically, God's grace shown through his faithfulness in the past. Did the parents care enough to teach their children? Apparently not. Did the children care enough to investigate and find out what their parents knew? Apparently not. And that lack of care about what God has done is at the root of what we read next in verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Beals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Well, of course they forsook the Lord. They hadn't been given a taste for the goodness of the Lord by being taught about his faithfulness in the past. And they hadn't the desire to acquire a taste for the Lord's goodness either. 
by seeking to learn about his faithfulness in the past. The lesson here is that God's people will only survive and thrive in this world so long as we keep the memory of his grace alive. When we allow ourselves to forget his faithfulness in the past, let's not be surprised when we have trouble trusting him in the present. As these Israelites look at their Canaanite neighbors and their way of life, they saw lots of things that were appealing and attractive. Don't forget, these Israelites are new arrivals. The way of life for them is going to be farming from now on, and that is a new way of life. And they see how their neighbors look to the gods Baal and Ashtoreth to make the land fertile to give them good crops. The Israelites see that and, well, why not join in? Well, if the Israelites had remembered what the Lord was capable of, if they'd remembered what the Lord had done in the past, they'd have been more likely to trust him with their future. But they were ignorant of his work in the past, and they weren't bothered to learn about it. They preferred to forsake this Lord they hardly knew and serve these other gods, which, by the way, they also hardly knew. Of course, they will learn eventually that Baal and Ashtoreth are lifeless and powerless. But if they'd cared to know the Lord, they'd have been saved generations of misery. So what about us? Do we care to know the same Lord and the great things he has done? Do we care whether our children know about his faithfulness in the past? Children, if your parents don't talk to you about what he's done in their lives, ask them why they don't. Ask them why his grace seems to mean so little to them that they wouldn't talk about it. But don't lay all the responsibility on your parents. How much do you care to know the Lord? If your parents do talk about him, do you switch off? Do you treat church as an hour to catch up on your sleep? Or do you see it as a chance to meet the God of the universe? Now granted, there's plenty of room for improvement in the preaching. But do you care enough to try and get what you can from the preaching? It's a terrible thing when young people and adults forsake the Lord, having made little or no effort to get to know the Lord. I am sick of hearing about people who abandon Christianity and they blame God or they blame the church for letting them down. When the truth is, they never cared enough about God to seek after him. They abandoned a God they never really knew. To give themselves to idols they don't know either. Not really. 
In the words of Jeremiah, they have forsaken the only spring of living water for broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Don't waste your life on that kind of mistake. Take the time, make the effort to get to know the Lord and what he has done. He has never yet let his people down. You can trust him. Whatever it is you're going through. Verses 14 to 19 ask another question. Who cares about God's grace shown through his compassion in the present? This generation of Israelites have forsaken the Lord who loves them. They have scorned his faithfulness and his grace. And the just reward for that rejection is to face the Lord's wrath. So biblically, what we're about to read in verses 14 and 15 is not shocking. These things are entirely to be expected. Verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them, to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Biblically, this is not shocking. God's anger here is a faithful anger. He swore long ago those who reject his love will face his wrath. That is fair. What is not fair is what happens next. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. This is not fair. This is pure grace. Even in his just wrath, God's deep compassion leads him to treat these rebels unfairly by sending saviors. That's what the judges are. Today, the word judge makes us think probably of someone who sits in a law court with a funny wig on. And the judges in this book do a little bit of that without the wigs. But primarily, these are warriors. They go out and fight Israel's enemies. They deliver Israel not through clever arguments, but through bloody warfare. The bulk of this book, as we'll see next week, is devoted to the individual stories of some of these judges. Israel doesn't deserve these saviors. But God is like that. He's forever giving us things we don't deserve. And you and I need to remember that on those days we decide to feel disappointed with God. God's compassion toward us is deeper than we will ever understand. He sent a string of warrior heroes to save these ancient Israelites. He sent his only son to save you and me. 
And we did not deserve that Savior. Any more than these Israelites deserve their saviors. How dare you and I allow ourselves to feel disappointment with God? Shame on us when we tolerate those kind of feelings. When we let ourselves forget the depths of compassion God has poured out on us. Compassion that he still pours out on us. Because it's not like I needed a savior 10 years ago and I'm past that now. No, I would be just as lost today if God withdrew his compassion. If the blood of Jesus stopped covering me. Thank God he doesn't withdraw his compassion. But let's not take his compassion for granted. Let's not take our savior for granted. That's what the Israelites did. Verse 18 says, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. They took God's salvation for granted. Well, of course he's rescued us. They forgot his compassion and it showed in their lives. And when you and I forget God's compassion, it shows in our lives as well. Often it shows in sinful discontentment and disappointment with God. So let's take time each day to remember the daily grace he pours out on us. There will never be a day when his grace is unnecessary. And so long as we have that grace in Christ, we are blessed beyond measure. Anything else is a bonus. Every day that you wake up with your sin covered by Jesus' blood, you have reason to dance with joy and relief. God has been so good to you that his compassion is so rich and so deep and so fresh every morning. The only way you and I can spend even a day disappointed with God is by taking for granted the great salvation we have in Christ. The last section of this passage shows us one more aspect of God's grace. And it's probably the most difficult one for us to grasp. It's grace shown through his decision to use enemies as opportunities. We saw last week, Israel had a clear mission in Canaan. They were to bring God's judgment on the Canaanites. That meant driving them out. And in doing so, Israel would be claiming their own inheritance. Canaan was the land God had promised them. And God warned Israel, if you don't drive them out, they will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. 
Israel had been committed to their mission then in the Lord's power, they would have driven the Canaanites out. We've seen, though, how Israel lacked that commitment. They've shown a sinful lack of trust in God. And in verses 20 and 21, God explains the consequences of that. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. The Canaanites then are going to stay put. They're not going anywhere. But even in this, even in this situation that's come about because of Israel's sin, God is going to be gracious. How? Look at verse 22. I will use them, that's the Canaanites, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. What is God saying? He's saying that these Canaanites, who are a trap and a snare for Israel because of their false gods and their evil ways, these Canaanites are also an opportunity for Israel. Because every day Israel has a new choice to make. Will they go along with their enemies again today? Or will they see those enemies for what they are? A trap and a snare. Will Israel wake up to the fact of that? And will they also wake up to the goodness of God? Will they turn back to God and his ways? That's the choice Israel has every day. That's how God in his grace is using Israel's enemies as opportunities for Israel. Look at the beginning of chapter 3. We're about to get in chapter 3 a list of the nations in Canaan, some of them anyway. But look how the list is introduced in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The point here is not so much that war is a training exercise. Soldiers do their training before battle, not during it. The point is, these enemies in front of Israel are an opportunity for Israel to show where their hearts are. God has not taken the enemies away, and the presence of these enemies is painful for Israel. We'll see throughout this book, these enemies cause Israel to groan, but they also provide an opportunity. These Israelites cannot undo the past. They can't go back and fight the battles they should have fought in the past, but at any time, They can trust the Lord and take up their mission to live for him. If there were no enemies, these half-hearted Israelites would just stay half-hearted. When life's easy, why would we change anything? But when life is tough, when your enemies are in your face, 
then you can either lie down and give in or you can look to God and pick up your sword. These enemies are a gracious opportunity for the Israelites to leave their half-heartedness behind and pick up their swords. But the sad message of this book is that Israel didn't take the opportunity. They failed the test again and again and again. If you look down to verse 5, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. But it didn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for you and me. We all face enemies. Those enemies might be people who are doing their best to make your life hell. Or enemies can be circumstances that seem to overwhelm you. Maybe at the moment the enemy you're facing is an overwhelming fear about COVID and your health. You're terrified by the prospect of day-to-day -day life. Enemies come in all shapes and sizes and forms. They might be there because of some past sin on your part. Or they might not. The application for us does not depend on how those enemies came to be there in your life. The application is those enemies are an opportunity. I'm not suggesting they're good. A genuine enemy is never good. I'm not trying to minimize the ugliness of your enemies. The pain that they cause. But every enemy is an opportunity. If fear is the enemy you're facing, then that is an opportunity. God has graciously made it that way. Every day our enemies force us to make a choice. Will we lie down under their attack? Will we get bitter with God? Will we curse God and turn from him? Or will we pick up our sword and face those enemies? Determined to trust God and live for him whatever the circumstances are. Are you willing to see your circumstances that way? What we all want to say is, I'll trust God and I'll live for him if he fixes my circumstances. But what God calls us to do is trust him and live for him in the midst of our circumstances. Even circumstances that make us groan. One day there will be no enemies left. But until then, God gives us gracious opportunities to prove his faithfulness. We do that by facing our enemies in his power. Who cares about God's grace? I hope that we all do. I'm sure we all do. 
So let's be men and women who keep his grace in mind. Let's take time to remember his grace to us in the past. All that he has delivered us from. And let's consider his grace to us every day. As the blood of Christ continues to cover us. His great salvation is great enough for all of our failures. And let's learn to view our enemies as opportunities. They can push us to new areas of obedience. They can open up new experiences of God's power in our weakness. There's nothing disappointing about our God. His grace is amazing. It's surprising. It's never failing. If only we will train ourselves to see it. Let's ask God to help us do that. And the last song we're going to listen to helps us focus on this unmeasured grace that God's, God pours out on his people. Again, Megan and Erwin will play this one for us. The words will be on the screen. Grace unmeasured. Even if we're not singing the words, let's use this as our response to God's word. Thank you. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.